Welcome to Behavior Grooves, the podcast that explores human behavior through a behavioral science lens. I'm Kurt Nelson. And I'm Tim Houlihan. We like to explore why we do what we do with researchers, authors, and practitioners in a conversational setting in order to bring those insights to you. And those conversations can cover a lot of different topics, from how to talk with conspiracy theorists, to how evolution has shaped our behavior, to new insights on habit formation, goal setting, on improving our influence with others. But some of these conversations, Tim, the, the ones that I tend to like best are the conversations we have about helping people understand and get through hard or difficult times. Yeah, well said. It reminds me of the conversation we had with Chester Elton on stress and anxiety, mm-hmm. right? That fits that category. Or our conversation with Dan Pink on reframing how we think about regrets. Oh, that was a good one. And what about even talking about the tools and processes to help us with end of life decisions, like with Victoria Schaefer. Oh man. Yeah. All of those conversations are important and can bring some scientifically based insights into our everyday actions and decisions to help us respond better to the world that's around us. And I know that those conversations have impacted at least how I've thought about those topics and even changed how I behave for, for one, You know, I now think of regrets like they are tools or signals for what is really important in my life from the conversation we had with Dan Pink. And I use them to improve my life instead of trying to avoid them or just dismiss them. But you bring up a really good point, Kurt. We can use these conversations to help us live a better and more informed life. And with that, I think you're going to love the guest that we've got on this episode. You know I love this guest. Yes. So on this episode, we get to talk to Jennifer Moss. Jennifer Moss is a Harvard Business Review contributor and nationally syndicated radio columnist. She was on the Global Happiness Council, which is a small group of leading scientists and economists that support the UN's sustainability goals related to global well-being and the annual Global Happiness Policy Report. Jen, she's quite an amazing thinker, and she's also the author of the book, which we talked to her about, The Burnout Epidemic, which came out in September of 2021. Jennifer brings some really valuable insights into why burnout happens and what we need to do as a society to help stem the negative impact that burnout has. It opened my eyes to a new way of thinking about this topic, particularly how burnout gets framed in our culture, and that loving your job doesn't make you immune to burnout. No, it doesn't. And Kurt, you'll be excited about the guests that we have next week as well. Jonathan Malesic, who also addresses the burnout crisis, but from a slightly different perspective. It's like a little mini series on burnout, isn't it? (laughs) I think it is. Now, Jen approaches burnout from the perspective of a lifelong employee of the corporate world, and she's had her share of good and bad work experiences. Whereas Jonathan Malesic, he's going to talk again in the next episode about how he was so burned out at his teaching job, he just up and quit. Mm. We put these two episodes back to back to offer you a deeper insight into the latest thinking on how to remedy the tremendous burnout problem that we have in our world today. And we're going to look at how burnout affects individuals, like to make a closer look at at the individual side, but also at the corporate and societal implications and what needs to be done to really help keep employees productive. And as always, thank you for listening. If you find this conversation that we have as interesting or useful, 
please help get the word out about Behavioral Grooves and leave us a review or share this or any episode with a friend or two, three, four, five friends, 10, Tony, a hundred friends, Tim. (laughs) If you have a hundred friends, I know you may not, but you know, many of our listeners probably do. They could share it with a hundred or 200 or a thousand friends. I've got you. Well, (laughs) that's what you tell me. (laughs) Yeah. Well, you know, I, you know, when we're talking, you're my friend. (laughs) So, We ask that right now you sit back with a fine burnout brew and listen to our conversation with Jennifer Moss. Jennifer Moss, welcome to Behavioral Grooves. I'm so thrilled to be here. This is such a great podcast. (laughs) Thank you. We appreciate that. Obviously, you've only listened to one uh, really lucky episode. Um, So as as you know, um, we start with a speed round. And so I get the lucky opportunity to do the first question here. So coffee or tea? Do you have a preference? Coffee in the morning and tea after two. After two. It's a very specific time. I like that. Yes. Wow, that's that's really interesting. I love that you've got it all designated out. Okay, would you prefer to have dinner with your favorite musician or favorite athlete? Well, my husband was a pro athlete, so I would have to say athlete. Oh, okay, okay. taking your husband out of the equation. Because <laughs> right. I know you have to answer that. that for political and, and, and yes. good, you know, living uh, you good know, like, relationships like here. Yes. yes. But let's okay. Let's just say, how about this? Let's just say, who would your favorite musician be? Let's just let's just cut to the chase on this uh, to have dinner with. There's oh gosh, this is such a hard question. But can can it be posthumous? Yes, sure. Yes. Let's just make well, it. This I would is say imaginary. like Ella Fitzgerald. Oh, oh, Ella, yeah, she would be an interesting. Think about think about the life that she lived. That would oh, just be an amazing conversation over dinner. Plus the musical components that you can talk to that's that's pretty i know yeah. i collect her records and we oh. usually put on her records at dinner and oh, i just swoon oh man we have talked about ella on several podcasts with several guests and i keep coming back to and i'm going to say it again because <laughs> everybody in the whole world should listen to 1960 ella in, berlin. <laughs> in berlin exactly the live in berlin yeah. I, think that I have. We just went to New York and went to the little shops there and like the vintage shops, you know, in Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. And I got and this is brand new, but I feel like it's a live in Berlin record. It was really astronomically expensive, but I haven't pulled it out yet. But I'm oh. sure I know it's a live album from way back in the day. So I have to go and look. It is so fantastic. In in part because, of course, she is at the top of her game. The audience is just hanging on every note that comes out of her mouth. You can just feel the electricity in the air. And she does Mac the knife and totally screws up the words. Like, <laughs> doesn't even get close. And, and it's so fun. And so she's such a pro. It's, it's I just think, I wish everyone in the whole world would just listen to that record. That's, <laughs> oh, that's my that's Okay, my well, idea. you know, I have a few purchases, so I'm going to have to go down and see what I found in that. <laughs> in the last, you might have a gem. You might have this yeah. gem that you have just yes. uncovered here. Yeah. yeah. All right. So, so if uh, somebody's starting to feel a little burnt out, can we just take a day off and do some self-care, maybe go to the spa and then everything is just going to be fine, right? That's that's all we need to do. Yeah. And you know what? That's what we've been told for a really long time, you know, <laughs> just listen to, you know, 15 seconds of rain and you'll be completely fine. 
And I think that's not helpful. You know, we found just in the last, I think even decade, as chronic stress has started to get worse, people don't know how to solve it and organizations don't know how to solve it. So they keep saying, okay, just here, I'll put it on you. Here are some tools, you figure it out. And, uh, and I think it's done a disservice because now people feel so much shame and, you know, stigma around being completely exhausted, especially in this last couple of years, it's been pretty rough. Mm, yeah. So the whole love what you do and you'll never work a day in your life, that's really not so accurate then, is it? No, it's really interesting because we found in the research that, you know, inspiration, passion, love for what we do is a prophylaxis to burnout. It does create this buffer. And yet a lot of people that really do love their work tend to sort of swing between harmonious and obsessive passion. Mm. And we're not really great at seeing the boundaries. We're we're not good at um, slowing down. We are not good at removing those urgent needs from our life and responding to them all the time. So that passion can be dangerous if we're not managing it ourselves. And yet, you know, a lot of leaders are terrible at modeling self-care, mm. which and then creates a legacy of everyone else not doing it either. Why is it? Why are we so bad at this? I mean, this is one of the things that we we love about behavioral groups is we get into the why. Why do we do what we do? And this seems like such an obvious thing. Like, why wouldn't we pay better attention to our own self-care? Well, you know, when you think about a workplace that is asking you to work 60, 70 hours a week and the amount of work just in general, even in the last couple of years, has increased dramatically. We're working about 30% more to hit those same pre-COVID goals. North America is around three hours more per day that we're working because we're in chronic stress all the time. So this idea of saying, you know, oh, well, I need to take time to do yoga or I need time to and take care of myself. Well, if you are exhausted, you don't have the time, you're chronically stressed, you just don't feel like you have enough capacity to do it. And so there's this great idea, you know, that we have these support tools, but we need to provide time to people. We And time is such a privilege lately. It feels mm. like you know, for a lot of people, they they don't have that privilege of time. Some people are working two jobs. There's single moms, especially in this last year, doing, you know, 20 hours of unpaid labor every week on top of their regular daytime, you know, expectations. So that privilege, um, it shouldn't be a privilege. And so that's what's happening is we just, we don't feel like we can put ourselves first. It's a luxury, you know, in our minds. Well, and one of the things that you talk about in the book is that we have for a long time thought about this as an individual problem and you're stating that it actually is an organizational problem and that there's probably a bigger burden that should be placed upon the organization to be thinking about this as opposed to the individual trying to solve it for themselves. Can you expand on that a little bit? Yeah, absolutely. It's it's a big premise for the book is this focus on the six root causes of burnout. And, uh, and it was really important in 2019 that the WHO, the World Health Organization, actually identified burnout, defined it for the first time as institutional stress or workplace stress left unmanaged. It's an occupational phenomenon, which is a really big deal in our world because it was finally saying there's major causes of burnout that cannot be solved on the individual level and there's six of them and we know overwork is going to be a big one. Uh, it's going to be the leading cause and was the leading cause from now until forever. It's just a major <laughs> problem. Yeah. Um, 
But sadly, I guess that's sort of a, you know, demoralizing statement. But but we also see these other five root causes like lack of agency. So not having any choice over what you do. You see it in lack of fairness. That's discrimination. You know, these, you know, really big investments in, you know, diversity and inclusion and equity. And yet, you know, you're not really seeing that move through organizations. Lack of fairness was so big this year, disproportionately towards women. You see that in lack of community. So not having healthy relationships or productive mm. relationships and loneliness this year played a big role in that disconnect. Uh, Mismatch values, really feeling like you don't, or you aren't good at your job anymore. You know, like you're emotionally distanced from your work because you got into this job in nursing and you had a plan to take care of people. And here you are working 16 hours a week, no PPE, feeling unsafe, not being cared uh, about. Then you think, well, that's I'm disconnected to the value of what I'm supposed to be as a caregiver. And then the last one is just um, mismatched or, or lack of reward for effort. So that could be table stake stuff, compensation, but it also can be, you know, that you're not contributing, you know, that people aren't celebrating you or even just saying good job. You're kind of getting in trouble for things that don't seem important. You know, I have really great stories around these people that quit because of this, that one breaking point, you know, and, and the thing is, is we do that a lot. We break people. And mm. that's that's the part that is really what is catastrophic about burnout. Chen, I love that you very openly talk about your own observations and your own personal experiences in the book. And kudos to you for that, by the way, because I think it really endears the reader to, to the message. And you talk about thinking about this rewards and recognition thing. You talk about, you know, going to a new company and everything just looks so bright and shiny and wonderful. And there's the, you know, the pool table in the break room, but nobody's using it. And could you talk about that a little bit where, where it's not just about having the pool table in the break room as, as a way to sort of solve this, this problem? Yeah. And I always use this visual of, you know, the dusty ping pong table, but th- <laughs> that's, that's really, for me, says so much about how we sell our cultures and brand our cultures and, you know, even just these greatest places to work and some of those other types of awards that people get, a lot of it is, you know, and I've been behind the scenes on this where it's a PR campaign and, you know, you're, you're telling people what, um, what they want to hear and you're getting recognized for that. But a lot of that is, is lip service Mm. and it's good intentions, you know, that, that actually don't play out in actual burnout prevention strategies. And this is the thing is that we talk a lot about, you know, all these downstream tactics that we offer, you know, here's a week off for our burnout employees, but we're not changing workload to address, you know, the fact that they're going to take a week off and have a massive, (laughs) you know, hangover from the amount of work that they have to now do to, to fill that void. We talk a lot about, you know, and this is changing now, but life on site, for example, it was all about being seen. And a lot of organizations still want us to go kind of jam the toothpaste back in the tube, go back to working five days in the office every week so that I can see you. And I know you're, you're productive and engaged because I can see you working. And, and meanwhile, when you see that need for people to be on site by giving them food and, you know, cooking their dinners for them and doing their laundry for them, they're now no longer spending time with family, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and what happens is you see divorce rates increase and relationships break up. So again, all of these things that we think of as perks, we're not really understanding that they are, way downstream tactics that are great 
and they need to be identified as perks, but they are not solving for chronic stress. How much of this is driven by leadership kind of either having the leadership mindset that this is an issue and that I need to model the appropriate behaviors or even setting up the systems in place so that, all right, that you can take that week vacation without having the week before that you're doing double work and the week after that you're doing double work. So you really haven't done a, a vacation at all. How much of that is is based upon the leaders? They, you know, direct managers and leadership play a huge role. And the problem with this, and I know that this is going to be one of the hardest problems to solve, is this idea that there's legacy there. You know, they grew up in this mm. same world where they had to spend, you know, you look at finance. I've had lots of interviews with with young professionals. It's like an eight-year hazing. And, and then they get the golden carrot and maybe get to, you know, junior partner. And then, then it's, a, you know, keeping up that momentum. And same thing in healthcare, what physicians even go through right in high school, trying to get into med school and then med <laughs> school is a slog. I mean, it starts so early. And so this legacy piece has to be adjusted. And so modeling the behavior for folks at that tenure is difficult, but they have to actually say, okay, the only way that this is going to stop a cycle is through me. I have to behave in a certain way because employees can't be what they can't see. There's invisible pressures there to perform or to answer emails at 11 o'clock at night, even though your boss is saying not to, but they're doing it themselves or they're taking meetings on vacation, but they're telling you, no, I want you to not take meetings on vacation. I'm just going to do it. We can't do that if we're really going to expect change. And if we continue to just have this legacy, nothing's ever going to change within burnout prevention. So the meeting I'm going to take next week when I'm on vacation, I need to just cancel that because it's setting the wrong tone. Okay. Thank you. I I can now do this. This is awesome. Yes. (laughs) I'm so proud of you because you know what? You're doing it. And I give, I really chide my friends, you know, I was with my friend on, uh, we were away and her employee, you know, and her boss said, I know you're away, but, and then that says so much. It's just, and she's said, well, instead of saying, you know, I am away, I'm going to take this time. She answered it and she was, it just creates this constant revolving door of people feeling like, you know, I can't make any change. I can't affect change and I'm not going to do anything to affect the change either. Well, and I I, di- I just read, I can't remember if it was LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, one of the social media things, this whole little story yesterday about this woman who, when she goes on vacation, tells everybody that she's going camping because then she's away from Wi-Fi and all of these things. And she said, I've never camped a night. I mean, we take walks and hikes, so I take the pictures. So if anybody asks, I can show them. Uh, but yeah. I've never camped a, a day in my life. And and she said, but that's the way that people go, oh, well, she's unavailable because she can't, she can't be accessed. Right. So people are doing workarounds on these things it, just to get away, which seems so horrible when you think about it. It is really sad. And we're going to be in a place very soon here where even when you're camping, you're, you're going to be accessible. <laughs> I, so she won't even be able to use that. Oh, I hate that. So we probably should change the dynamic instead of just, you know, trying <laughs> to have these, these ways of escaping uh, the life back home. We need to get away. Yeah. Let's get back to leaders, Jen, because you've directed a lot of the book toward leadership. And there's, it felt like, and I don't think you said this directly, but like readers, the leaders 
kind of mess up in part because they're not very good at reading the room, like their EQ might be a little on the low side. Am I re- reading the book correctly in that way? Well, I think great leaders have very high EI, yes. like emotional intelligence. They're excellent yeah. at it. And the people that I interviewed that were in the case studies that I declared as being good examples, their leadership has high EI, good empathy, right. strong empathy skills. But a lot of middle managers, for example, they get moved hierarchically into these roles of people leaders, and that's not actually what they're skilled at. And so I think what we need to understand is how do we get people into these roles that are just excellent at leading people and then have people that are great at individual contributors still have that same level of seniority and and equity and pay, and then we'll have more EI in the middle management space. And then as they move up too, then leaders need to, we need to promote leaders that that, that's part of a skill set. And it's what I think is a fundamental skill set because what we're seeing right now is lack of empathy is a bottom line issue. Mm-hmm. People that are resigning, it's the, you know, so much of the data says my boss or my employer lacked empathy for me during the pandemic. And this is, you know, not just people reshuffling. I know we, we've thought of, we keep hearing the great reshuffle. There's actually 30% of the global workforce that are leaving and not going to a whole any other job. Like mm-hmm. they're literally, they are debating what they're going to do with their lives. And we're seeing major career pivots. So we're seeing people leaving sectors like teaching and nursing, which has catastrophic community effects and macroeconomic effects. So I think that's what we we need to understand is that that lacking empathy plays a big role in attrition. And so leaders don't just need it as a soft skill. It's a mandatory to function skill. Can that be resolved through training or is empathy something that we have to look for in the people that we promote to those positions? Is there an empathy training that can happen? You can learn to develop cognitive empathy. You develop it by constantly actively listening um, and then actioning what you're hearing, even though it might go against your, you know, your innate need or desire or what you would would normally do. So you go against maybe what your original intention would be by actively listening and actioning it. However, if you have innate empathy, I mean, then you can have the superpower of that being innate plus learned. Mm. And those are the types of people that are truly remarkable leaders. And so we can all learn the skill, but if we're looking at who's going to be at the executive senior level of our organizations, like CHROs and chief people officers and CEOs, those people that are really leading culture, you want them to have extremely high innate and learned emotional intelligence. That doesn't seem like the recipe that has currently been promoted for those positions, right? The the kind of standard CEO, chief financial officer, chief people officer, doesn't necessarily, empathy isn't one of those that they go, oh, this is one of the key things that we're looking for. They're looking for other aspects of it. So it's a real reboot of, at least from what I'm hearing you say, it's a reboot of how we think about these positions, not just that middle management position, but even as we move up further in the the organization. Yes, it's critical. And it's interesting because it it used to be a joke that 10% of CEOs were actually psychopaths. And, (laughs) you know, and that was kind of like, well, and then there was a whole bunch of 
you know, there's a whole bunch of headlines that came out, like how psych- being a psychopath is actually really good for an organization. And I thought <laughs> that's not true. I mean, and no. I, you know, and we're talking and we're talking because, and it's, and like, I'm not saying that psychopathy is something that we should be demoralizing. It's more that there are certain parts of that, which mean there is less ability to be able to mirror other people's emotions. And, you know, you're not able to be as empathetic. We need to look at it as not this this transactional relationship. Our social contract with our work has dramatically changed. It is no longer transactional. That social contract means you need to care about me. You need to care about the community. You need to be doing better things for the world. You need to care about the environment. I mean, we have expectations that are very different than how it was when we were on the factory floor. And that might feel like it's sped up. And and it has. The pandemic has sped that, that necessity up because it's really collectively, we spent two years facing our own mortality. There's been days where it was about just pure survival. And when that happens and you become very insular and protective and your sort of hierarchy of needs gets very fundamental, then it changes who you are. And then two years of being in practice of that, like our neural wiring has actually changed. So we can't go back. And and that means rethinking all of it. So do you think to some degree, Jen, that companies need to become more paternalistic, for lack of a better word? Yeah, I think that it used to be that we would, you know, quit if work was in our business. Now we're going to quit if they won't. And so I think that there has to be a fine line. I mean, when we talk about paternalistic, it can't be dictatorial where we're looking at, you know, bossware and some of these other things that have started to increase where people are watching what you're doing while you're at home. I mean, it can't be like that. It needs to be more about a mutually beneficial relationship that, you know, you are vulnerable to the, to the tools and the supports and the leadership in that you're going to take what they offer and use it and help to, increase your own well-being and happiness and wellness because we still have a life outside of work hopefully mm. and we have a life after we retire and work we still need to take care of ourselves but at the same time organizations can't just assume that you're going to show up and it's only about a paycheck you know for the first time in history we've seen pay be the second you know to work life balance as far as why people are moving or they're taking new jobs and you know that and it it's amazing how even the data that says it's pay pay might be 61% and work life balance is 60% of folks you know responding so it's really becoming in line that pay is great but it's not the end all and be all and that changes then again the social contract so peter drucker once famously said culture eats strategy for breakfast It sounds to me that this is a similar, you have a similar type of mindset around this, that culture, the how the company shows up, the way that they show up is as important as all the other factors that you typically go into what we think about organizations. Would you agree with that? Am I off base there, Jen? I think culture is everything. I completely agree with Drucker that (laughs) it is, it's so critical, you know, and I've spent a lot of time leading up to this in, in wellness, but looking at the neuroscience of well-being, the neuroscience of happiness and 
and really focusing on the neuroplasticity inside mm-hmm. of organizations. And I, I see, you know, I really kind of look at the brain and companies sort of in a similar way. We are constantly reorganizing to adapt to change. And we're where we have our environment and our actions and our behaviors are, are the habit that we build to create the culture or the subconscious, you know? So our culture, you want to make sure that it is leaning on subconscious patterns. You want it to be that in the moment you lead with empathy without having to think about it. You want to be, you know, naturally grateful and focusing on what we have versus what we don't have, uh, naturally optimistic. I mean, you can only do that through years of intentional daily work, you know, five minute a day kind of work where you go from not knowing, you know, how to even brush your teeth to it being just part of your hygiene. And that's the thing that if we don't focus on it, if organizations don't say it's an intentional daily mind shift, then they'll do what our brains do. And they synaptically delete that piece of it. So if you don't focus on burnout prevention or well-being, you will be an organization and and a culture that synaptically deletes it. So it is this process that we're doing similar to our brains that means that it's an, a very long it's a it's a long strategy it takes day-to-day incremental change and then over time that's when we see that it's shifted and you can feel the culture you know that you know when you feel it in the walls you know when you feel it in that you just know it and we've been there where cultures are just so phenomenal we feel it and then we know when it's not and it's usually cuz we've fallen off of our habits we've fallen away from what we have to do every day to make a good culture work and so i think that's that's been my big focus is understanding how we make those tiny changes and operationalize you know, healthy workplaces. I love that. Another one of those major elements was curiosity. You spent, I love the section on curiosity. Could you just spend just a minute as to the role that you think curiosity plays in building a sort of a better DNA for an organization? I love that you asked that because that chapter was my favorite one to write. I just really, (laughs) I just really loved it. And I think it's because it's, it's reminding us and giving us evidence to go back to playing and to being curious and validating that it's important. And, you know, I always love to have science kind of reinforce grammar's rules, right? Like these are what we know. We just, you know, we need evidence or science to remind us that being a good (laughs) person, being curious is good for us and good for the, you know, our organizations. But, you know, what I loved is my interview that I had with uh, Dr. Martha Bird. She's the chief anthropologist, ADP. Just she was a magical woman. And I wanted to add so many more pages, but we had to (laughs) edit it down because our interview was so interesting. And what she said is that, you know, as anthropologists, you just you want to be naturally curious. I think myself as a journalist and, and you probably are the same thing. It's you're naturally curious about other people's stories. So in organizations, you know, we want to hear other people's stories and we should all be professional eavesdroppers. You know, leaders, that's their job is to be professional eavesdroppers. And we do that by kind of going back to the days on the savannas where we were tribal and the only way that we could communicate with each other was in nonverbal communication because we didn't have a shared language. So you're, you know, using your hands or you're showing your height to say either, you know, I can work in the tribe, I can, you know, I can participate. All of these things, you know, lead us to having to, to connect with each other in a sort of more primal way. That means 
listening what people are saying behind what they're saying. Or if they're saying they're fine and yet, and you know, in all their meetings, they're talking about being tired or, you know, they're, they're saying they're fine, but they're describing financial stress of putting their mom into assisted living or their kids in university. You know, these are the kind of things that going behind or sort of beyond the fine is going to help us learn what makes people burned out, what stresses them out, but also what motivates them. If you keep hearing them talking about, you know, how they love their kids' baseball team and watching baseball on the weekends, or they have a a love of antique cars, like these are the things that managers can get really good at, you know, figuring out in those personalized, very nuanced types of motivation strategies. They can they can make it more exciting and more connected. And so we just have to connect to people in that sort of base tribal way. And then that really builds bonding and productive relationships across cultures. And it reduces inequity. We find that the more we listen uh, and the more we care about what other people have to say, the less we stigmatize them, the less we other that person. I love how you talked about this before, where you said it's this these natural things that we have, and then you like to back it up with the research that just says, yes, we should do this. And what you're just saying here, I think, is one of those things, is that idea that good leaders should know who they're leading. It, it isn't, there. you're not a cog in the wheel. You are an individual human being, somebody who has hopes and dreams and pains and fears and all of these other factors that come into play. And the more that I can understand that if I'm a leader, then the better that I'm going to be able to understand you, but also how to work with you and and what you want so that we can have this mutually beneficial relationship. And so I love that component. And I just, I think it's a really interesting piece, again, that we, this is a natural thing that we should all know. And yet we we forget that we we get into it. And I think it goes back to your, your piece about cultures is the culture that you get in, does that reinforce that idea of getting to know these people? Or is it, no, we need to get these, you know, things out regardless. I don't care how you feel or any of these other things. It's just, it's the end end result. Well, I think part of it is that we as leaders need to also embrace vulnerability. So, you know, and I have this really great sort of formula for a weekly meeting, non-work related check-in. So I keep saying we need to reduce all of the meetings. We have so much meeting fatigue. It's unbelievable. There's this really, as an aside, there's this great um, data point that Jeremy Balenson, you know, from Stanford Media Lab, he talks about how we have Zoom burnout. Yeah. One of the reasons, and there's others that are funny, but one of the reasons is that there'd be no time that you were this close up to someone in person unless you were mating them or fighting them. And <laughs> so he says we're like hyper aroused all day and we don't oh. realize that that's oh. why we're so tired at the end of the day. And so, you know, we are in this state, but we do need to have these, uh, you know, reduced meetings, but have non-work related check-ins. So bring a meeting back in. That should be only like a half an hour, but we need to say, you know, are you fine? People are going to lie. And then we need to say, but, and create a format, like, so, okay, name a high and a low. You know, these are simple things that we would do with our kids, like at night, you know, name a high and a low of your day. But we create this format. Someone says the highs, the lows, again, we pick up on the cues. And then this is a really important part. What can we do for each other to make next week easier? How do we eliminate a little bit of that stress? And and leaders need to come and participate in that and say, you know, hey, this was a high, this was a low for me. 
And we all work together in this kind of this bonded, united front to solve problems for each other. And then it reduces that us and them. It doesn't make it seem like I'm managing this meeting and you're supposed to just all be vulnerable, but I won't. And when you've seen (laughs) this intervention, it's amazing how, you know, managers were so afraid of being vulnerable that they just thought that they wouldn't be as respected or, you know, it might put them in a position where they couldn't lead effectively. And instead it created this amazing unification and their employees just had better satisfaction at work, which helps, but they just wanted to do more because they had compassion. They, you know, they understood this person in a whole new way. So yeah, you can create it inside of organizations. It can be built, but it, it has to kind of work like a network effect. You know, seeing people in these small teams eventually try to make change by it catching on almost like a, a social contagion across an organization. And that's when you really see it it come alive. I love that. We talked with Liz Fosling at the beginning of the pandemic, and she wrote a book, um, No No Hard Feelings, The Secrets of Emotions at Work. But what she was talking about is that being on Zoom and kind of in this world that we are, we miss what she called these bump-in moments, these times that when you're walking down the hallway and you're going to the same meeting and you get those two, three minutes of conversation with somebody where you get to understand some of those things. And that's also where she talked about, and you talked about the recognition part, talking about we tend to do, oh, hey, thank you. You answered that email for me last week. It was fantastic. Thank you. We do those in those types of moments. And on Zoom, we don't. We don't have that. And so we we miss those opportunities. And I think that is, again, tying in with what you said. We have to build those, those kind of meetings. We have to be purposeful about that now, exactly what you were just talking about. Yeah, creating serendipitous moments. And I think <laughs> serendipity, it's like, and it's such an oxymoron. How do you actually- <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Yourself? I love that. <laughs> and it, and that's, that's, I think, going to be the challenge. And so I do- think that remote is flexibility is great a fully remote never seeing each other i i see sort of downstream impacts of maybe there being threats there and it's difficult to have serendipity and we're missing that we're also becoming very comfortable our brains don't really like to have change they we love novelty but we hate change yeah. and so when <laughs> right right such a frustrating thing but so what happens when we feel fear change you know it's like an error code in our brain that we want to just fix we don't like feeling uncomfortable and right now we've had 2 years in this stasis this idea now of going into a workplace feels really uncomfortable for us. But the thing is, is that there's a part of being together, again, that tribal need of non, you know, verbal communication has to be manufactured in some way. Like even if it's once a quarter, you fly in and meet each other, or if it's once a week, or if it's spending two weeks together and then being remote for a a year, there has to be a way that there's budget and kind of expense now that we have so much, um, you know, we have so much extra from all the commercial real estate that we're not using anymore. Let's figure out a way to move that into supporting travel or supporting connections, because you do really need to have technology augment relationships. And right now it's just replacing them. Yeah, You know, you love teams. I I love the, the emphasis that you put on teams as sort of a building block uh, to from an institutional perspective. And you talked about scrums. 
could you spend just a couple minutes talking about scrums? I, I became aware of scrums through agile, through the a- agile development world, but they were actually developed, you know, they were actually kind of identified back in the 1980s in an HBR article. Could you talk about why the scrum is a, well, maybe just explain what a scrum is uh, mm-hmm. for those who aren't familiar with agile or with, with that kind of setup. And then why you think that that's a good and important building block for offsetting burnout. Yeah. And you know what we, you know, I was for seven years, uh, started up a tech company and then it was a stay up. So, you know, we were paying people and we were eating. So, you know, that's considered a stay up. Very base, you know, expectations. Mm. But we had scrums too. And and really it's this idea of small teams, you know, so because if you get too big, you have social loafing is what it's called. Basically, people sort of don't contribute. You can think of it as the idea of the scrum, you know, in football, this idea of these teams being able to move off of each other. But in technology too, it's kind of like the same idea, but it is about iterating constantly and having small team be able to you know, contribute, trial something, test it, iterate, and then be able to move on. So it's always a test and iterate sort of relationship. And it does need to be, you know, bigger than, you know, some people say five, some people say eight, you really are supposed to have very small teams. And I know Google took on this mindset of small teams, because the more kind of professional intimacy you have, the better likelihood you are going to work for each other and it's not going to expand past that. And so for me, and I I know right now, particularly in the pandemic, what has happened is that team sizes that weren't, you know, at the the scrum size at at that level or that kind of, you know, so there's two parts. That size played a big role because our young professionals that had just started in these jobs inside a pandemic Part of this time for them is not just to develop relationships, but also to set a brand, to set an identity, to show who they are. And when you're not getting one-on-ones because your manager is a team size of 20 people or 15 people even, you're not getting any uh, ability to show who you are, people are feeling like their career is being set back. We also saw the issue when you talk about iteration and the, the importance of iterating, a lot of leaders did bad jobs of staying married to old ideas Mm -hmm. and they weren't quick enough to abandon those ideas. And that led people to really feel like that they weren't prepared, that they weren't uh, supporting them, that they were doing, you know, they were solving problems with old tools and not realizing that we needed new tools to be able to solve this particular crisis issue in a crisis. And so when we have smaller teams, when we are much more iterative, when we have this mindset of culture of try instead, you know, that people say failing forward, I like culture of try. So just testing things. And if they're not working, we let them go very quickly. And that mindset around that team size and the ability to change and be more agile to change, those organizations did much better throughout the pandemic. Yeah. And to what degree do you think mindset plays a role in this? Mind in teams, do you think, or just mindset overall in yeah, well, in to, I guess, yes. <laughs> I mean, because <laughs> you could speak to any of this. Yeah. I'm coming at it uh, from the team's perspective and specifically, but feel free to answer as broadly as you wish, Jen. So from the team standpoint, and, I, and that's an important question because mindset is critical, especially when you have organizations where we're putting too much investment in large projects again, here's size, but large projects. And so we put too much emphasis on them succeeding. 
And then people feel like they've spent too much time or we've spent too much money. And so failure feels like not an option. And so there's a lot of sunk costs. When we have within teams and sizes, all of these things, it makes you much more able to adapt. And the thing is, is a lot of what we found in the data and the research is that people were very frustrated that their organizations were like dinosaurs when it came to technology. And everyone had told them we needed to be able to, you know, get out of this sort of antiquated way of of working, of using our tools. And when we have agility, we're able to make quick pivots. And those organizations that couldn't make quick pivots really created a lot of disharmony in their teams, but also it really made people have a difficult time being competitive. And that's where you saw a lot of obsolescence in some organizations. And you see that in certain sectors. This is the whole concept of nursing and healthcare. We have just behaved the same way Mm -hmm. for so long. Teaching. We should have been practicing teaching in a much more agile way, using different types of tools and modalities before we forced all these teachers to go remote with no skills, no capacity, no efficacy. And so that's the problem is if we're not being more iterative, then we get stuck in institutions and then we have these types of events and it's catastrophic. Mm. Yeah. Uh, Let's shift things up, if you don't mind, uh, for just a minute. As someone who has been trained in classical piano, what's on your playlist these days? Oh, you know, I just heard this cover of Dancing in the Dark, and it is by this, he's a Norwegian guy, and I have to send it to you after this, but it is, I just keep listening to it over and over. The timbre in his voice is just so beautiful, and he's singing you know, this song that's, he's toned it down to really talk about the sadness, you know, that that Springsteen was really feeling in this song. And it's beautiful. You really feel like, okay, this was not, like we had all the riffs that Springsteen always put, put on it, but this is so pared down. It just feels like you want to cry listening to it and you really get to feel like what is happening, you know, and, and obviously my my records. I love my Ella. I love, you know, anything that's of that sort of like early 60s, 70s R&B female singers that have soul. Oh, I just love to listen to that music. Uh, every day. Aretha Franklin. Uh, yeah. Um, Etta, Aretha. Oh, I Etta mean, James. Yeah. I had some Sam Cooke on, Mm, uh, just like those greats. Um, But then you know what? I love, and you laugh at this, when I get in the car sometimes, I'll put on hardcore EDM. (laughs) (laughs) Just to hear that thumping. Sometimes I just want to like feel like I'm, you know, at a rave in my 20s. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. I love it. So it's it's an eclectic mix of music that I like to listen to. So if you were to get stuck on a desert island, you know, with all the challenges that might come with it, what two artists would you take with you? Two musical artists catalogs. You know, I know this is probably on trend, but I love Adele. I mean, I'm a ballad, a ballad like singer. I, I sang too in university and uh, and always loved the songs that 
um, just make me want to break up with someone for a day so that I can like, you know, feel what she's feeling. So I, I do really, yeah. really love that, like that emotive kind of music. And then maybe I'd bring my, you know, I love the, the whimsy and the joy of Beethoven. Mm. So maybe some of my classical piano and the big symphonic sounds to just make me feel cerebral when I need it all alone on that island. I'm just feeling an extra special sense of gratitude by you saying Beethoven, because the number of people we, who talk about classical artists often refer to Bach. Mm-hmm. For lots of good reasons, but Beethoven is my favorite. I it's mean, so happy. There's so many. Ma- he uses so many major chords, and you know, I mm-hmm. whenever I would improvise, and I just love major chords. So, and when he goes to awesome. when he goes to something minor, when you go to like mm-hmm. the you know the yeah the Ninth Symphony, it's like. Holy Hannah, you know, this is a big deal. This is important. This it is, a, but you'll you know. always notice at the end of the, the phrases that he'll, he'll solve the dissonance, you know, and, and I love that. Like you're feeling all of these like strange feelings, but there's a way that somehow he just bookends the phrases with this, like this resolution. He's so yeah. question and answer. Right. And he's always giving you an answer. And I love yeah, that. He, does, he, he, he doesn't uh, leave any loose ends untied. <laughs> no, he does not. He does not want you left. He doesn't want to leave you wanting, which is probably why I like Adele. I like movies that don't leave me hanging at the end. I don't like those movies, and I like Beethoven. Oh, I love it. Jen, this has been absolutely wonderful. Great insights. So we really appreciate your time and your insights here. So thank you very much. Thank you. This was such a pleasure. I told you. So there'll be two (laughs) podcasts now that I think are really awesome. (laughs) There you go. First one I heard and and then it'll be this one. one, This one. There you go. Good. Well, thank you. Thank you. Welcome to our grooving session where Tim and I share ideas on what we learned from our discussion with Jen, have a free flowing conversation and talk about whatever else comes into our burned out brains. Oh man. I don't know. Is your brain burned out? I, you know, this no. is, this is an interesting no. piece, right? This is yeah. this idea that some people get burnt out and you feel it in various different things and, and other people don't. And this is part of the conversation that we have is like, what leads to that? What are some of those pieces? And, and luckily I feel like I get tired sometimes. Like, you know, I get, wow, I got a lot on my plate, but I don't feel like I'm getting burnt out. Well, that's the thing. Have, but have you in your career? I mean, you've been in the workforce for what, seven or eight years now. So uh, <laughs> have, have you ever felt burned out? Have you ever had that experience of like, oh God, you know? Yeah, I mean, I think there are those pieces where you just, uh, yeah, I think there have been times where, and a part of that is control, part of that is what you're working on, a part of that is is the culture that surrounds you and the expectations Uh that are there, all of those kind of things. And so I think that that's true. How about you? Yeah, me too. I've had points in my career when I felt burned out. But there's been a lot, I mean, that th- those are vivid, but they don't dominate my, my viewpoint, right? Mm-hmm. Most of the time, my career in, in the workforce has been really pleasant and enjoyable and rewarding. And that doesn't mean that it hasn't been filled with hard work yeah. and sometimes exhaustion, but sometimes that can be really rewarding too. Yeah. And, and maybe that gets us to like the first thing that I wanted to talk about, and that is 
the dusty ping pong table. Dusty ping pong tables? You need a cleaner. <laughs> no kidding. Or maybe it's about prioritizing. Like I, <laughs> right? I love that Jen brought this up as you know that she walks through the the company on her first day, and there's the dusty ping pong table, and it sent this big signal to her like, whoa, whoa, whoa! Nobody's using the ping pong table. Nobody is actually playing. No one. They, you know, the company says, oh no, you know, we got this really fun game area, but nobody's using it. Right. And so to me. That there's a, an issue about prioritization and what the priorities of the company and the managers and the leaders have, and then what ends up becoming the priorities for the for the workers. Which I think is really key when we think about this, this idea that yeah, it's important. We know that these elements of having relaxation and some fun and some different aspects, we know from the research that it is important for people not just to prevent burnout, Right. This idea, again, of framing as it but on well-being, on productivity, on a number of factors that are beneficial for the organization. Where I see this really taking a back seat, though, is as you just as you said, prioritizing. Right. It's a temporal discounting issue in, in my yeah. mind. Right. It's this yeah. idea that, well, I'd love to do that, but I have this client project that's due or I have this you know, paper that I have to get done, this report that I need for executives. And so I, I'll, we'll play some ping pong next week, right? And then it gets pushed off yeah. and then it gets yeah. pushed off again and it gets pushed off again. And granted, we're not saying ping pong is the be all end all of, of corporate burnout, right? <laughs> no, but this is, no. it's, a, it's a sign. It's a, it's one of the things. And this idea of pushing out those things that are going to help our well-being and all of those because they aren't priorities, because we don't see that immediate impact. I know what happens if I don't get that report done for the executives or I don't get that project done for the client on time. And it's not good. And this idea that, well, if I don't play ping pong, well, oh, so what? Right. It's, yeah. it's that long. But it, in but, over, but then the burnout happens a year later, a year later or six months later. And. And that's not good. There also might be a planning fallacy issue to this from a management perspective, that the managers are coming at this not really taking into account the amount of work that the team is doing. And they think that just one more incremental thing is going to be okay. Because it's just it's just one more. It's just it's like one more thin mint. Oh, you know? It's <laughs> way for thin. It's only way for thin. Way for thin. <laughs> it's the meaning of life. And when we have this experience of having just these tiny little incremental things built on top of each other, then we fail to take into consideration how busy we're going to be in the future and how burnout isn't going to solve itself. And so this becomes a corporate thing, I guess. A it's, ton of feathers is still a ton, right? Is Linda Babcock. Linda Babcock. Said, you know? Yeah, exactly. The, the other piece that she said that I thought was really interesting, and you pointed this out, right, to, to me, is, is she said, employees can't be what they can't see. Oh, and that yeah. leaders, I don't know why this is. I, I guess we could hypothesize about why this is, but leaders are terrible at self-care and and this idea that they model the appropriate things. I mean, we had a, before we got on, we were talking about our own experiences and like what leadership was back in the eighties and, you know, the first into the office and last to leave and who got yeah. there first on the weekend and all of those things. <laughs> right, and just, man, right. that was a toxic kind of time and it was. culture when I think about it. I mean, I was <laughs> young and dumb, but 
you know, come on. And maybe the point of this two-part series on burnout, or one of the points, is that we're living in a world today where we understand human behavior better. We understand productivity better. We've just been through one of the greatest experiments on work from home in ever in the history of our world, right, with two years of the pandemic. And so we've seen white-collar workers forced to work from home. And we know a lot more about productivity today than we did two years ago. Yeah. And we need to be thinking more about empathy. We need to be thinking more about what leaders can do to uh, to model the right behavior, or at least to model the behavior that their corporate culture supports yeah. in a way that employees can then see it and respond to. So I'm going to ask you a question. So have you seen the recent tweet from Elon Musk about 40 hours a week of, what's the quote? Yeah, I, I think he said, anyone who wishes to do remote work must be in the office for a minimum. And I mean minimum, he put that in parentheses, of 40 hours per week or depart Tesla. Wait, so, so yeah, you can do remote oh. work as long as you work 40 hours a week in the, in office, the office and then whatever yeah. above and beyond that you can you can do your remote work and i think it goes to this modeling this idea of what is productivity and behavior and again i think it's so short sighted in this idea that look you might get some big input here and we know we know that being in person has some benefits has some really yeah. positive things from you know, sharing ideas and creativity and a number of other things. But we also know that being able to work from home and having some of those other factors as, again, produces an increase in productivity typically as well as a number of other good factors of having more sleep and family time and other things and you're showing up just in a better spot and you're better overall. Now, again, every individual is different, but this idea that Elon is saying, look, it's, this is the hard steady rule and different things. He's not modeling this, you know, this element. And I, I think in the long run, it's just going to lead to more burnout at Tesla and SpaceX right. and whatever other company well, he has. And that seems to be what he's modeling. He, he's sort of saying, I want a corporate culture where people work their ever-loving asses off until they burn out. Yeah. And as Sandra Sutcher would say, let the CEO set the tone for what the company is and then let the employees decide whether or not they want to stay. So I hope that this is a clarion call that if you line up with this, like if this is your ethos, your personal ethos, like I can't wait to work 40 hours a week in the office and another 40 hours a week from home. If that's you, go to work for Tesla. But if that's not you, get the hell out. All right. I actually think that that's just a wrong leadership model because I don't think that you're going to, I think you could maybe get you know, a hundred employees to, to work like that. And I, I don't know, but this idea that empathy, and I think this is a big piece is, is do you have empathy for people, for, for what they're yeah. going through, for their life? They don't have the same stakes in the game that Elon Musk has. They don't have the right. same right. history and ability to have everything, you know, Oh my gosh, I'm sure, does he cook his meal every day? Does he clean his house every day? Does he, right. you know, have to take his kids to the little sports yeah. game? No, I mean, I think he has a whole different worldview on that. And so the empathy, I think, there is missing. So I, I think that's a yeah. big piece. Well, and along those lines, Jen kind of teed up this idea that maybe we're heading into a time where a little bit more paternalism actually makes sense. 
you know, it's not everybody has to, to do this on your own time, figure it out for yourself. It's the company can step in and be a part of the solution mm-hmm. to be more empathetic It's going to lead to more diversity, equity, and inclusion, I think as well, because with, if, yeah, I, I won't, I won't editorialize there. Well, but, but just even this idea of, again, modeling what we're doing, like how many times do you have meetings that you're invited to that you're going, why am I here? Right. Let's get rid of some of those meaningless meetings. Let's have weekly check-ins, I think, right? You know, look at our days and how we're structuring. Do you need to, you know, can you structure different times? I mean, part of part of the fact of the remote work, I think, that people enjoy, and I don't have don't have data or research around this, but it's just it's more autonomous that I can choose, all right, I need to go and and do something for a half hour and I have a break in my schedule. I can go do that. Whereas if I'm at work, you know, people are looking at me, seeing me in different pieces of that. And that's not me meaning that I'm taking a half hour and not giving that back. I'm providing that at a different time. I just am in more control. And when I'm in control, that is helpful. So I think there's a big piece of that that we can take and just adopt and learn from. So yeah, DC and Ryan are just doing the happy dance probably for all this autonomy. There you (laughs) You go. That's a good good intrinsic motivators. Um, You know, the last thing that I wanted to bring up is we read this article in the Wall Street Journal this morning, just today, it's June 3rd. There's an article titled Why Sheryl Sandberg Quit Facebook's Meta. And she and I just want to want to read one of her spokespeople said she sees herself as someone who has been targeted, even tarred as a woman executive in a way that would not happen to a man gendered or not. She's sick of it. So like this says to me that not only the corporation, but maybe society has basically been not responding to her. And she's just tired of it. She's worn out. She is. She's, she's burned burnt out. out. Yeah. She is literally burned out. Not because of the work she was doing. My God, she's one of the most successful executives, you know, in the, in the tech industry today. So she's got all the cred and all the ability, but the environment is killing her, squelching her, and, and that's something that we need to pay attention to. I think you're a hundred percent on target with that. This idea that, particularly, we think about burnout and we think about how it applies to us. But we look at uh, at other genders, uh, races, you know, a variety of different things. And it's hard enough to have empathy for people who are similar to us, but people yeah. who are different. And you kind of think of all of the other small things. And again, burnout isn't necessarily because you don't love your job. It's the other factors that go into that. That's one of the things that Jen says. And I know it's one of the things that Jonathan says. It's that's the idea that you can love your job. And still have burnout, which I think is a really key point here. It's these other things that come into play that you have to deal with. And having the empathy for understanding, you know, what women in executive roles in in the workplace are going through, what people of color are going through in the workplace, what a demographic that is younger or older than you is going through, I think is really hard. But it's something that we need to do and to think about as we're as we're moving this through. So agreed. Well, what do you think? Do you think that wraps up uh, the key points we wanted to address with Jen? Well, there's so much more. It was a great conversation. We really, uh, we both really enjoyed the conversation with Jen. So it, it's certainly not easy to wrap it up on anyway. But, you know, before we sign off, we just want to say that next episode then is also about burnout. And it's a terrific conversation with Jonathan Molesic. Now, his lens is slightly different from Jen's. 
and he offers some additional different perspectives on the way to think about burnout. And these are things that you might enjoy. So we want to encourage people to check that out as well. Definitely. And as always, if you like what you hear, please give us a quick rating or leave us a short review. Send us an email. We've had just a couple different emails this week. It was fantastic. It's like, it's whoa, this is great. Yes. All right. And it goes a long way. Not the emails to us, but the the other things, <laughs> the ratings or sharing a, a short review yeah. or whatever goes a long way in helping other folks find us on whatever pod service they use. Now, the emails to us goes a long way in making our week. And those, yes, are, those are fun. So that's a good thing as well. So we appreciate all of it. It has been a good week for happy emails. That's for sure. Of course, we want to thank you for listening. And we hope that our conversation with Jen helps you go out this week and find your groove. Mm-hmm.